Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible of some format, electronic Bible, an old school Bible, any kind of Bible, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. And you can open it up to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 3. We are in our final and seventh week in this series entitled Dear Church. It is the seven letters to the seven churches. And this morning, the letter that we will consider is a letter to the church in Laodicea. And it is a very serious letter. It is a, a letter that Jesus is, has written with love but also with much warning. So Revelation chapter 3, Jesus writes to this church, Dear church, trust in me. Dear church, trust in me. Stand with me if you would, please. We're going to read Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. Where Jesus speaks, John the apostle writing, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither caught nor you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may, be, you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And father, we thank you for your word this morning and for loving us enough, Lord, loving this church enough, loving us as individuals enough to speak the truth. As difficult as it might be for some to hear that they are lukewarm, you are faithful. And your desire more than anything is to move us to repentance. This morning we pray, God, that our hearts would be bare and naked before you. They are. That is the reality. And yet we can surround them with many things to deflect the conviction that you may put upon our hearts. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you, you bind those things from distracting us this morning and, and that your spirit would speak directly to each one of us individually as your church. That you would help us, Lord, if we are found to be lukewarm, to be indifferent regarding your word and the commands that we find in them, Lord, that this morning you would revive us, that you would blow a fresh wind in our hearts, that you would awaken 
maybe some who have never come to that place of bowing their knee to you. So we, we come, Lord, we ask that your spirit have his way in us this morning, Lord, and that you would speak directly to us. We know you have something to say. May we have ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The first confirmed billionaire was J.D. Rockefeller. And one day he was asked by a reporter, just how much money would be enough for you? And his famous reply was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. J.D. Rockefeller, uh, I believe, is who has who been modeled after in the famous uh, program SpongeBob. And he repre he's represented by Mr. Krabs, who likes money. You know Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. Maybe you don't, but he is a guy that is infatuated with money. J.D. Rockefeller had the same problem. He loved money. There is a danger. There is a great danger uh, with the love of money and with seeking out money. Money itself is not inherently evil, but the love of money is inherently evil. The issue with, with wealth is that it can produce a deception of needlessness. And as we look around in our society, we, we can sense that in our own culture. We are a wealthy nation. <laughs> we are incredibly in debt, but we are a wealthy nation for the most part, right? And there is, for many, many of us in the world today, a sense of needlessness. I have what I need. Don't confuse that with contentment. Contentment and a deception of needlessness are two different things. To be content is you're okay with where the Lord has you. You're okay with your financial position because you know that he is over, he is Lord over all. And that he is the one that has given you what you have. And you're a steward of those things. That is quite different to be content in the position that the Lord has you financially versus somebody who has been blessed to some degree, whatever financial blessing that might be, and it doesn't have to be a lot. But they're blessed to a degree that they feel they have no need. They feel they have no need. It's oftentimes in, in, in our financial dire straits that we seek the Lord, is it not? When we find ourselves with our back against the wall, saying, oh, man, Lord, I have need financially, that we look to him. But oftentimes, if, if the financial part of our life is going well, we can easily be deceived and not looking to the Lord, not depending on the Lord, departing, actually, from this reliance upon the Lord and becoming self-reliant, becoming people that are self-dependent, that are really concerned more about the number in our bank account than we are about really our heart condition. And that is, in fact, the state of this church that Jesus writes to in Revelation chapter 3. They are a church that is, they're a city, really, that is incredibly wealthy. And that wealth has produced a self-reliance and a self-dependency, so much so that it is, that is spilled over into the church. This church had departed from the real gospel.
and it had become dependent upon the things in its society that made it wealthy. Wealth is an incredibly deceitful thing. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to speak to the wealthy. And he said this in verses 17 through 18. He charged them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the, listen, uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation, listen, for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's interesting how deceptive wealth can be. That you can think that it, there's life in that. And in fact, we can see through various different examples in our culture today that there is in fact no peace with wealth. There is in fact no contentment with wealth. It doesn't matter how much you have, there is an innate uh, place in our hearts that can only be filled by God. And he put that there for that reason. Yes, you can go from thing to thing to thing. And you can buy one thing after another to, to momentarily take away that, that real place of need. That place that only God can fulfill. And so, Paul exhorts Timothy to tell the rich, be, be careful that you don't fall into that. In fact, Paul begins by telling them the real issue with wealth in verses 9 through 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, listen, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Wealth can bring freedom, true, but it also can bring ruin and destruction. It just depends on who holds who. If you hold wealth in your hand in the right way, it can bring freedom. But if it holds you, it will bring ruin and destruction. Just ask the many lottery uh, winners who have won millions of dollars but ruined their lives. It wasn't a lack of funds. It was the fact that money had a hold on them. It was a heart issue. It ruined their life. God wants to protect us today. He wants to remind us that there is nothing in this horizontal life that can compare with true and lasting contentment that he can bring in your life if you rely on him. Jesus said it like this, abide in me. He didn't say abide in your paycheck. He didn't say abide in your 401k. Abide in your investment portfolio. What he said was abide in me. And if you are trusting anything else outside of Jesus Christ, you are not abiding in him. And you will not be at peace. You will not find the comfort and, and the peace that you seek. It's impossible for materialism or anything, any person or anything to provide that to you except for Jesus Christ. This church had allowed the wealth that they experienced 
to give them a false sense of security, of power, of authority, and success. Masking, listen, the realization that all human beings, even wealthy ones, are powerless to save themselves. Are powerless to save themselves. Faith in Christ, not in self or any other thing, is the only way that we can be saved. And this church had abandoned that truth. You might think that Jesus is incredibly upset with this church. And yet, I find a different story. I hear the heart of a Savior that loves these people so much that he writes them a letter to tell them the reality of the state, their spiritual state. He wants them to understand that they have fallen asleep, that they have lost their zeal, that they are treading water. They are going through the motions and that he sees it and that he cares so much about them that he will address it. Jesus, although he is incredibly sickened by the, the, the apostasy that's happening in this church in Laodicea, he still has an incredible love for them. As it was said before, you can never out the love of Christ. Do you know that? It doesn't matter how far you go. It doesn't matter how unbelieving you become. He still loves you with the same love that he loved you if you were being faithful and you were just being obedient to everything that he said. He has not lost his love for these people, nor has he lost his zeal to bring them back to a place of saving grace. That is his heart for this church, and that is his heart for you. This church was, although they were rich, they were literally spiritually bankrupt. They were monetarily well off, but they were spiritually bankrupt. They had falsely assumed that their worship was pleasing to God, but in all actuality, it was nauseating to him. Like many other churches in, in, in Revelation 2 and 3, the other six churches, we don't know how this church began, but what we know is that it is a spiritual train wreck that Jesus is addressing because he desires to salvage these people. Laodicea was the wealthiest of all the cities found in Asia Minor. It was the banking center of the region due to its strategic location upon two main trade routes just 40 miles south of Philadelphia. The city was so wealthy that it was said that when it was destroyed in AD 60, that they rebuilt the city with their own wealth, rejecting any financial aid from Rome. Unlike Philadelphia and the other cities that received the help, Laodicea was so prideful that it said, we're good. We have enough money. We'll, we'll rebuild ourselves. And they rebuilt a glorious city. Laodicea is one of the triad cities located in the Lycus Valley. I know that means a whole bunch to you. But uh, it's important for you to understand that Laodicea was like in this valley that was a rich valley, but it was a valley that was also inhabited by two other cities. Hierapolis was just six miles north of Laodicea and the city of Colossae, where Paul writes the letter to the Colossians. It was just 10 miles to the east. Laodicea was built upon a plateau, making it uh, a very disadvantaged in terms of being able to defend its borders. And thus the politicians in Laodicea were very, very uh, um, willing to uh, compromise with their enemies around them just to avoid attack. This city was uh, 
famous for a soft wool, a, so a soft black wool that was used to produce high-end clothing and carpet. It also produced a highly valuable eye salve that was exported all over the Greco-Roman world. There was a temple there to the Phrygian god named Mankurar, uh, Man and this Phrygian god was considered the moon god, uh, really associated with the underworld, agricultural fertility, and the protection of tombs. But it was in this temple that they produced this, this salve, this eye salve, that they would sell all over the world. It was supposed to be uh, a, a, a cure for blindness. It's interesting that Jesus addresses all three of those industries, the financial institution, the banking institution, the gold that they have. He addresses the, the, the clothing that they are wearing. And he also addresses their spiritual blindness, the salve that they are selling. Jesus said that the dependency upon your industry is false. It's giving you a false sense of security. And so he uses these things to help illustrate their spiritual condition. This letter to the church in Laodicea was the most disappointing of all the letters that Jesus wrote to any of the churches because they are in a state of thinking that they are something that they are not. It is one of the most difficult states to reach someone, folks, is when they think they have something that they do not. And we live in a culture where people are just like that. They think that they have something that they do not. And, and the fruit of their life is the evidence of the fact. Jesus says to this letter, Dear church, although you're trusting in yourself, I'm calling you back to personal relationship that you would trust in me. He begins with a typical introduction and description here. In verse 14, where he says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Who is he speaking to? The angel. Who is the angel? Once again, that word can be translated messenger. Or, most probably, the pastor of the church. It's interesting Jesus addresses the pastor of the church, is it not? Because the pastor of the church has a responsibility of that church. Wherever God places the, the pastor of the church, he has a responsibility to the spiritual condition of the church. And thus, if you've noticed so far in the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus directly writes the letter to the pastor of the church, although it's meant for the congregation to hear. He's, he's addressing first the pastor because his responsibility is to make sure that he produce, that he cultivates a culture within the body that is not self-centered but Christ-centered. That is not de self-dependent but interdependent is dependent on Christ alone. And so he speaks to this pastor who is failing miserably in this area, in Laodicea, who has been caught up in the same culture that is happening outside the four walls of the church. It's spilled its way into the church, and the pastor has fallen into it as well. He has become self-dependent, self-reliant. Perhaps he's too busy purchasing, you know, uh, luxurious transportation for he and his wife to focus on the, on, on the spiritual condition of the church. Or maybe he's too busy building his mansion on the foothills of Laodicea to understand the spiritual condition of this church. Much like many of the pastors in our, in our world today that are doing the very same thing, that have forgotten the mission. It is not about building a kingdom. It is about building his kingdom. 
And if you are building any other kingdom, you are off mission. And that is the case, folks. This pastor is completely off track. And Jesus wants to address it with him. He wants him to understand that they have, there is a culture of apostasy that is existing within the four walls of this church. And he's allowing it. He's not saying anything about it. He's just allowing it to exist. And he will answer to the Lord for that. And I will answer to the Lord for the spiritual condition of this church. So listen up, okay? <laughs> My eternal state depends on, no, I'm just kidding. But he's talking to the pastor, and I think it's important if, if you are in leadership, if you're a pastor, if you have a calling to be a pastor or feel that the, the, the calling is a high calling, it is one of those things that you need to take serious. You have a responsibility to whatever it is that God calls you to. Each one of us have been given a calling. Each one of us have something that God has, per listen, he created you for. He created you for something specific. And if you're not living it out, then you're off mission. It is not about what you can build in this life. It is about what you can contribute to the body of Christ and uh, building the, the, the greater kingdom of God. That's what it's about, folks. And that's all that it's about. Don't miss that. Please don't miss that. He addresses this, this pastor, and then he describes to this church uh, some different attributes, specific attributes that he wants this church to understand. There are three things that he wants this church to know about himself that relate to their spiritual condition. Number one, that he is the amen. The word amen, you may already know, is, is a word that, that's used when you are saying, I agree with you. You say, amen, I agree with you. The word can be translated, so be it, or it is done. In the Hebrew, the word amen literally translates truth, affirmation, or certainty. It refers to that which is firm, fixed, or unchangeable. In the Greek, when you come to the places where Jesus speaks a truth, and he says this phrase, verily, verily, or he says truly, truly, same translation, what he is really saying is amen and amen. He's already agreeing with himself about what he's going to say. He's saying, what I am about to say is so truthful, you might want to listen up. That's why there's a double affirmation, truly, truly, or, or, you know, verily, verily. I'm wanting you to hear what I'm saying because this is a truth bomb, and you want to hear this. And so Jesus often spoke like that. Bible declares to us that Jesus is the amen. He is the yes and the amen of all the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, speaking of Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus Christ is the amen of all the promises, Old and New Testament, in the Bible. He is the amen of that. He is the certainty of that. He is the truth of those promises. Anything outside of him is not amen. He is the amen, singular. There is no other amen besides him. And he wants this church to know, as certain as the sun will rise and fall, he is the only amen. They have trusted in another amen. And he wants them to understand that he is the amen. And not only that, but also that he is the faithful and true witness. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John depicts Jesus as the faithful witness. 
again, Jesus says of himself in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, that he is the true one. The word faithful, it literally means reliable. The word true means trustworthy. Unlike the pastor in the congregates of Laodicea, Jesus is the reliable and trustworthy witness. He's directly speaking into their unfaithfulness and their unreliability. He's saying, look to me, I will never fail you. If you want to understand the Christian life, you look to me because I am the faithful and the true witness. You look to me to, to model Christianity. What does Christianity look like? It looks like Jesus. If you have any questions about whether you are living the life of following him or, or you know, you have the model in Jesus Christ. He says, look to me. I'll show you what it looks like. Aren't you glad he showed you? Aren't you glad that Jesus, you know, really ultimately uh, came and he demonstrated what it means to follow him? He said, just follow in my path. Let me just set the example for you. Parents, if you have children, that is the most effective way to teach, to show them exactly what it is that you desire for them to do. I, wrote a, I read a book early on in my career, uh, not, not in this career, but in my, in my worldly career. And it was a book by Stephen Covey, Covey, and he wrote this book, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person. And he said, you know, if you want your child, you know, being a manager is much like being a parent. You have, to, you have to do a lot of the same things. He said, if you want your child to understand what, what it means to do their job well, you show them. So he says, I, I, I went out one day. I told my kid, I want you to rake up the leaves. And then he went on to rake up a portion of the, of the yard and said, that's what it looks like. Now go do the rest of it. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He's modeled what it means to be a Christian. He is what it means to be faithful, what it means to be true. He's addressing the reality that this church is not walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. They have abandoned course. They are off track. They are walking to their own tune. The question is, are you? Are you being the faithful and true witness? Witness is the key word there. Are you being the faithful and true witness that he's called you to be? Jesus, he said something to um, Pilate in John chapter 18. When he was asked, who are you? They say you're the king of the Jews. They say that you're this and that or whatever. Who are you? And Jesus said, it is, it is as you have said. He goes on to say that he was born, listen, his purpose, his entire purpose of life, was to bear witness of the truth. His entire purpose in life was to bear witness, to be a witness of the truth. Did you know that your entire purpose after being born again is to bear witness of the truth? Jesus told his disciples when, when he departed that the Holy Spirit would come and he would remind them of what he said so that you could bear witness of the truth. The question is, are you bearing witness of the truth? Are you being a good witness today? Are you on mission, church? Are you, on, are, are you doing the, what God has called you to do? Are you being faithful? Are you, being, are you standing for the truth? This church was not. And Jesus says, well, look to me. You want to get back on track, just look to me. He goes on lastly to declare himself 
as the beginning of God's creation. This is not to be confused with the idea that Jesus is a created being. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the exact opposite, actually. He's saying he's creator. That phrase there, the beginning, you can circle it in your Bible, draw a line out to where you can write these words. It literally means the origin. He is the origin of God's creation, meaning he created it all. That is confirmed by the word of God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invincible God. Listen, the firstborn, this is a positional word. It means existed before and is supreme over. That's what the word means, firstborn there. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, if Jesus Christ is creator of all things, how can he be a created being? He cannot. That contradicts the rest of Scripture. Listen, when you encounter scriptures like this particular scripture in Revelation chapter 3 that seemingly say something different or that other organizations use to prove that Jesus was an angel that became a human being and they discount the rest of scripture, you have to understand that scripture interprets scripture. We don't get to use our own human logic when it comes to these kinds of things. We have to allow the word of God to interpret itself. What Jesus is saying here is that I am the genesis, the beginning. I created it all. And listen, he said, and Paul wrote in Colossians that not only did he create it all, but he created it, it was created through him and listen, for him. It was created for him because he's God. He is God in human flesh. And, and, you know, it, it just blows my mind that we don't understand that. It is a difficult concept, and yet the Word of God speaks on it. And so we believe it because what? It says it. There's many, many things in the Scriptures that I don't logically understand. I don't logically understand how Philip was laid into some water, laid, a, laid a, un, a eunuch into water, and then all of a sudden just appeared in Azotus 20 miles north like that. I don't understand that. My logic tells me that, That's not real, and yet the Word of God says it. Who am I going to believe, myself or God? I'm going to believe God. Don't let your logic get in the way, which brings me to another point. I'm fascinated by by this reality of those in our world today that continually ask the question, where are we from? Where did we come from? Listen, I have the answer for you. Jesus created you. That's where we're from. The word of God declares it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, who was the creator. If you have any questions about where you're from, you need to look no further because the Bible just says uh, the plain facts that you came from Jesus Christ. He, He created you. And it is amazing to me to see those who will fall into deceptive 
uh, nature of believing this, what is supposed to be this scientific and so reasonable explanation, um, which is a theory, by the way, but we teach it as a truth, and our kids are supposed to just receive it in, uh, that evolution is, is the answer to how we exist today, why we came to be. Again, we don't really use logic, but logically speaking, that doesn't hold up. There is no evidence for evolution. There is no, ev ev there is no scientific evolu uh, evidence for, the, for even the premise of evolution, folks. It doesn't exist, and yet it's considered scientific. I was blown away by watching this video by National Geographic by uh, Neil deGasser, was the host. It is absolutely the most laughable thing I've ever seen. You might want to check it out <laughs> if you want a good laugh. It's called the Cosmic Calendar. Are you kidding me that we can determine 12 billion years ago on December 31st that our world was created? How in the world do you confirm that? December 31st? Are you kidding me? And then you continue to say a billion years in January, a billion years in February, a billion years in March? Are you kidding me? That is absolutely ridiculous. Listen, Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago. We don't know the day he was born, but we know the day that this whole world was created, right? That is ridiculous. And, and, and yet it's posed as scientific. And the world, by the groves, is believing it. Believing it. It's called deception, folks. It's anything the enemy can do to deter us from believing in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is life. The enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And he will blind the eyes of anyone and everyone he can to keep you from seeing Jesus. That, that question is the premise of all people. Where did I come from? Jesus said, listen, I created you. I'm your daddy. I made you. I love you. I want relationship with you. Don't you listen to another word. Don't you listen to another deceptive word that points you somewhere else. You look to me. I am creator. Rant over. Jesus wants this church in Laodicea to know that he is the amen. He is the faithful and the true witness, and he is the origin of God's creation. He is our all in all. He is everything. And he's pointing this church back to him. They have lost their way. He goes on to give this church an incredible metaphor of their spiritual condition by way of correction in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Notice that Jesus says that this church had works. Everybody has works of some sort. Everybody is doing something, good or bad or indifferent. This, this church, Jesus doesn't necessarily say much about the types of works that they're doing, but the spirit of the works that they are doing. Really, it's the heart of the works that matter. It's not necessarily the, the kind of works that you're doing, 
but it's the motive. It's the why of what you're doing, right? Jesus says, I, I know your works, and, and you know, you're, you're doing a lot. You're, doing, you're, you're out in the community. You are, you are doing all these things. But here's the problem. You're just going through the motions. You're neither hot nor cold. You have no heart connection to the works that you're doing. You're just going through the motions. It would be sort of like getting up and putting on your clothes and going to church and listening to a sermon and leaving here and going to lunch and, and doing what you normally do all the time, just in a routine. And it makes no effect on your life, no impression, no power. It's just a routine that you're going through. That is the issue of this church. They're neither hot nor cold, but they are lukewarm. They are doing things out of their own selfish ambition and for their own selfish glorification. Jesus uses a metaphor in this description here of being hot nor cold, but being lukewarm regarding the water supply of this region. Laodicea was built in such a way that it wasn't around any water source, and so it had to bring in its water. And so it was piped in from Hierapolis, just six miles north of the city, under, through an underground aqueduct. And Hierapolis had hot springs. So the water there was from the hot springs that was brought underneath um, the ground to Laodicea. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it would cool down. And it would become lukewarm, good for nothing. Jesus is making a description here about hot water being therapeutic. It's, being, it's good. Hot water's good. He's also, you know, there's different interpretations of this, but speaking regarding cold water, cold water is also refreshing. And yet lukewarm water, who, who, who goes into a restaurant and says, man, give me a tall glass of lukewarm water. I just need some lukewarm water. That is disgusting. And if you do that, there's something wrong with you. But, but the reality is, is that what Jesus is saying is that there is therapeutic use in hot water. There is refreshing work in cold water, but there is nothing good about lukewarm water. And that's the state of this church. They are lukewarm. They are tepid. They are indifferent. It's interesting, by the way, as I was looking at this, that did you know that the first letter of the the city's name correlates with the water temperature of the city. C for Colossae, cold. H for hot, for Hierapolis. And L for Laodicea, which is lukewarm. Only God can do that kind of stuff. I mean, I thought that was interesting. I'm a nerd, but whatever. I thought that was pretty cool. In this region, in these three cities in Lycus Valley, that God would coordinate that. But here's the more important thing he cares about the spiritual condition of your heart. He wants you to be either hot or cold. He does not want you to be lukewarm. What does that mean? Many consider this metaphor to be a description of three spiritual conditions. Some say that there is the cold from Colossae that represents the unbeliever. There is the hot from Hierapolis that represents the believer. And then there is the lukewarm that represents the carnal Christian. There is another interpretation, which I believe is probably more what Jesus is speaking about, because Jesus isn't wishing that you would be like an unbeliever. Luke, like you would be cold like an unbeliever. And some would explain it like 
if you're cold, there's still a potential for you to come to Christ. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying that he would wish that you were either hot, being therapeutic, that you would either be cold, being refreshing to people, but that you would be in relationship with him. That's what I believe that he's saying. I think that he's talking about two different types of people. I think he's talking about a believer and somebody who is a a believer that is a carnal believer or somebody that's backsliding or somebody that's an unbeliever, period, being lukewarm. Never less the case, here's what we know. Jesus does not want you to be lukewarm. He does not want you to be that way. He wants you to be in a state of following Him. To not have a form of godliness and deny its power but to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life in such a way that you are hot and, and therapeutic to people or you are cold and refreshing to people, but you are not lukewarm. You're not indifferent about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's doing in your life. You're not indifferent about what his word says about what is sin and what is not sin. You're not indifferent about the things that are going on in our culture that, you know, you, you know you're just willingly, you know, saying, oh, I, I'm cool with that, whatever works for you. You know, because it's a personal relationship and, you know, I don't want to get in the middle of your personal relationship. We have the Word of God. It, it, it goes above and beyond anything that we think. And if somebody's in violation of the Word of God, I certainly as a loving brother want to come alongside them and say, hey, man, you know, I'm not indifferent to your, to your spiritual condition. I care about you. I care about your situation. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to be tolerant because that's politically correct. Like, I'm not just going to be accepting of where you're at. I'll be loving, yes. But I will speak the truth to you. And I will tell you what's going on in your life. You know, and I would hope that you would do the same. And I would hope that there was something in my life that's off that you would love me enough to come tell me. Right? That's what he's saying. Don't be lukewarm. Speaking of warm, is it hot in here? Man, I'm hotter than crap. Yeah. I see people fanning themselves, so I'm like, whoa, this is getting hot in here, Lord. Listen, he goes on to, to make it plain about the spiritual condition of this church. He said this. He said, you say. Does it matter what you say? Not according to this, because what they said and what Jesus says are two different things. You say that you're rich. <laughs> you say that you have no need. Not realizing, totally blinded to the fact that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, that you're miserable, that you are poor, that you're blind, that you're naked. Jesus is saying you are totally blind to your spiritual bankruptness. You think that you have something that you do not. How do we know? How do we know if we have genuine salvation, true salvation? Well, number one, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation. Have you changed? The Bible also declares that a true believer will bear fruit. Is there fruit in your life? You know, there is a condition for a believer to be in a backslidden state where they are, they're just coasting. But there's a conviction in the heart that says, hey, this isn't right. This isn't where I need to be. I need to move forward. 
And if there is no conviction, if there is no change, if there is no fruit, then that would suggest you're not a true believer. That is the reality. So what would Jesus say? Get saved, man. Come to Christ. Let me change your life. That's his heart for you. That's what he desires. This church, man, they were, they were thinking they were believers that were rich. They had the material, they had materialism. They had a, a, a financial institution within their city that declared their wealth. And yet Jesus says, you're not rich, you're poor. They had this, they had this, this high-end black wool that they would wear around in fashion and think that they were all that, right? Jesus says, man, you're naked. You're not even, you're, you're not clothed. He tells them that you think that you can see, but I'm telling you, you're blind. And then he counsels this church to deal with the false reality of their hearts. That they have this false sense of security. And so he gives them counsel in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The first step towards recovery from lukewarm Christianity is to recognize your need. To understand that you are in desperate need of Jesus today more than you ever have been. If you think because you're born again that you have no need for Jesus, then maybe you didn't receive him in the first place because you are in desperate need of Christ today as you first believed. You are as desperate in need of him as you are oxygen, folks, and that need never changes. He is our, he is our sustenance. He is the, our provider. He is the one that we look to. Our dependency has to be on him always. He tells this church, man, I want to counsel you to, re to, to, to move beyond this lukewarm state to this, this place of being usable. Because I can't use people that are going through the motions. Because there's no heart connection. There's no truth being presented. Jesus isn't going to, uh, he's not going to let you go through the motions. He's going to address it. And that's what he does here with this church. And he'll go on to tell us here in a minute that he disciplines those whom he loves. But he tells this church, come and buy from me. He's not speaking about buying something materialist, materially that you can purchase with money. What he's talking about is faith. He's using an analogy to come buy something that you cannot buy with earthly means at all. And in fact, it's a, it's a um, reference to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, that says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What Jesus is saying is all you got to do is come to me and I will give you what you need. I am the one that can supply your need. I will supply your every need. He is what we need. And the only way to move past this lukewarmness is to come to him. He's talking about this, this to buy this gold that is refined with fire. This is, this is a type of treasure that, that lasts forever that there is no impurity in. He's speaking about the impurity of the wealth that they have and their self-reliance upon that wealth. He goes on to address the, the garments that they have, find pride in. This Notice that they're black garments, and Jesus says, why don't you be clothed in white? 
it would look much better on you. Black doesn't fit, fit how you were created and designed. You ought to wear white. It's a picture of purity. You notice that he's dealing with purity here. The impurity of the gold, the heart centered on the wealth. The impurity of the garments, the heart centered on their sin. And he's saying, come and take on this white garment, which is the robe of righteousness that comes not through any kind of works that you and I can do, but comes by faith in Christ alone. And thirdly, he says, come and take the salve that I can produce for you so that you can see. You were spiritually blind and you, you don't know it. You were putting your faith in this physical salve that produces this wealth that causes, that continues to produce the blindness that you, that you have. But come and take the salve that I have. You know how Jesus makes salve? He spits on the ground and he makes mud and he puts it on your eyes. How awesome is that? Jesus, I want your spit, man. I want that mud on my eyes. Come on, Lord. He says, come get the salve. Here's what I want you to hear. Nowhere in this does Jesus say, I will force you to do this. What does he say? It's an invitation, folks, to come. You've got to come. He has offered it up to you, but he's saying you have to respond to that. You don't need money. You don't need anything but faith. All you have to do is believe in me. And you can come, come and get these things that I'm offering you. And you will have eternal life. That's what he's offering to this congregation. It is, there is an irony in, the, in this council here because it directly reflects the very issues that are going on. These three producers of wealth in, the, in this city. How interesting. Jesus moves on to verse 19 to the command. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline and be zealous and repent. That is his command. To this church. He's telling them, I'm only doing this because I love you. What parent disciplines their child or doesn't, you know, disciplines their child out of just, you know, just not loving them? I don't care. If you don't love them, you're not going to care what they do. You know, if you don't, generally speaking, there are exceptions to the rule, just mean people in general. But generally speaking, a parent disciplines the child because they care about the child and they care about the, the direction and, and the trajectory of where that child is going. And God cares about you. And he loves you so much that he would discipline you. That he would, he, would, he would come into your life and he would not allow you to be comfortable in your situation. So what does he do? He brings circumstances into your life. You get, you know, all different kinds of circumstances. Don't misinterpret that either, though. Into thinking that every circumstance is a chastisement from the Lord. It is not. Sometimes it's just a test. The Lord, Lord allows whatever it is that comes into our life. That's for sure. But he allows it for different reasons. Sometimes it's just to test our faith. It's not necessarily we're doing anything wrong. It's just, hey, I want to show you where you are. So he tests our faith. James chapter 1. But sometimes we are doing stuff wrong. And sometimes the Lord, you know, does chastise us. He always will chastise us because he loves us. And so he disciplines us. We call them spiritual spankings. The Lord says, get over here, man. I'm going to have to give you a spiritual spanking because you're not listening to me. The Holy Spirit has begun convicting you about this thing, about talking to this person and flirting with this person or doing whatever you're doing, watching whatever you're watching. The Lord continues to convict you until he will, he will collide. Somehow there will be a collision with Christ, and he will produce some kind of circumstance to get your attention. How far you want to go? How far you want to go? Because he will discipline you, and it hurts, and it's not fun. 
And guess what? You don't have to deal with that. You don't have to go through that. It's total dis, dis, um, it's disobedience that produces God's chastisement. So, hey, guess what? Just obey. <laughs> you won't have to worry about it. But if he is disciplining you, know that it's because he loves you. He's a good shepherd. You know, a shepherd carried a staff and a rod. David said, man, that rod and that staff, they comfort me. Why? Because that demonstrates your love for me. A, a, a shepherd would take that rod and they would break the legs of a wandering sheep, put it over his shoulders and carry him around so that he could hear his voice. He would also use that staff, that, that hook, to grab the neck and yank the, the wandering sheep off. Why? Because he cares about the sheep. Because he knows if the sheep gets separated from the shepherd, that he is vulnerable to attack. And God loves you too much to let you do that. And if you are wandering way off, guess what? The good shepherd will leave the 99 to go after you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you, man. He's telling this church to be zealous. They, they have lost their passion for the Lord. They're, they're lukewarm. They're tepid. They have no passion, no zeal for the Lord at all. Perhaps you feel the same way. Maybe you need to fall in love with Jesus again. Maybe you've lost that love and feeling. Listen, if you're not in his word, if you're not communing with the Lord on a continual basis, you will not feel in love with him, and you will not feel loved by him. It's in that pursuit that you see his great love for you and it produces a love for him. So if you've lost that today, listen, the answer is easy. Just get back to that personal relationship with the Lord where you're hanging out with him, communing with him. You're in his word. You care about what he thinks about how you're supposed to live your life. You want to apply these things. You want to pray. You want to, you want to get in other people's lives. You want to encourage. You want to do these things. You want to be zealous. How do, how do I get back? Repent. Just turn around and go the exact opposite way. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. That's what he's saying. That's the solution to the problem. Just repent. You, we listen, one step towards God is the right step, folks. And, and, and that step will produce, start to produce a passion and a zeal for the Lord. So if you take that step, if you're, if you're off track today, you take that step today, he will begin today to re replenish that zeal for him. And, and, and the love for him. He tells this church, listen, behold. He tells this church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. We use this as an evangelistic call. And it is. It's an invitation. But context of the, of, of the, the invitation is to the church. It's not to unbelievers. It's to the church. It's to people who think they're believers. Maybe they are unbelievers. They, they probably are unbelievers. But it's an invitation to people who are in the church. And he's saying, I'm standing at the door. Why is he standing at the door at the church? Because the church has put Jesus outside the door. You can put Jesus outside your life, folks. There is a doorknob on that door of your heart, and it is inside. And it can only be opened one day. And Jesus will stand there, and he'll knock at the door. Will you open it? Only you can open it. He will not force his way. He will not huff and puff and blow that house down. He will stand at the door and he'll knock. Will you hear him? Will you invite him in? If you will invite him in, he will sup with you. He will dine with you. What does that mean? He will have communion with you. He will have relationship with you. To share a meal is to share your life in this culture. He's telling you, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. How do I open the door? 
repent. You repent. That's the doorknob, folks. He goes on to say, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and also conquer, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The reward for the conqueror who trusts in Jesus alone is this, that he will grant him to sit with him upon his throne. It's not enough, folks, to believe in Jesus. It's not enough to believe that he existed. It's not enough to believe that he's everything he says he is. You have to receive it. You have to personally take the invitation and say, I want Jesus inside. And if you will let him inside, then you will have the privilege of sitting with him on the right hand of the Father forever. And you will rule and reign with Christ. That is the reward, folks, to be with him forever in eternity. To commune with him like you have never communed with him. Listen, there is a point in which in eternity, when you pass over from this life to, to, to eternity, where you see in part today, but then you'll see in full. You, you have love for Jesus, I promise you it will be nothing like the love that you have for him when you see him face to face. When you totally understand what he has done for you. You see through a glass dimly today. You know in part. And yet, one day you will know him fully. Listen, you're not guaranteed, you're not guaranteed the next moment, folks. Here's the reality. Jesus wants you to understand that whether he tarries for another day or another 10 years or another 10, uh, you know, t- whatever, uh, another 100 years. It doesn't matter how long it will be before he comes. What he wants you to understand is there is a day of reckoning for you. You will stand before him one day. And you don't know when that will be. I woke up this morning, and uh, my wife sent me a, a, a text of a person that, um, that we knew that just died yesterday. Had no idea. You think he woke up thinking, I'm going to die today. Probably not. I don't think anybody wakes up like that. But here's the reality. You will one day die. And the question is, where will you spend eternity? Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth that if you are apart from him, if you're not in relationship with him, you will spend eternity in hell. You'll be spend eternity separated from the love of Christ. But if you believe in him and you put your faith in him alone, if you trust in Jesus and you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you will spend all of eternity with him seated at the right hand of the Father, with Jesus Christ. And that's what his heart is for you. You know where you sit. He's spoken to you. You know what you need to do. So obey him. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for, Lord, such a candid presentation to a church that thought that they had everything, but in all actuality, they had nothing. They had a form of godliness that denied its power. They were people that were interested in itching ears rather than changing lives. Father, we pray this morning for our own hearts as we even prepare for communion now. That you would cleanse us, Lord, of any lukewarmness in our own heart, any indifference towards your word, towards who you are, who you say we are, towards sin, Lord. We ask you this morning, 
Lord, search us and know us. Lord, if there be any wicked way in us, would you reveal that to us this morning? We want to be hot or cold. We want to be therapeutic and we want to be refreshing, God, but we do not want to be worthless. We don't want to be useless to you. We want to be tools in your mighty hand, Lord. We thank you that we can be. We ask for your spirit to just move in our hearts this morning and that you would direct our steps in how we should respond to this letter that you wrote nearly 2,000 years ago to a, to a physical church that existed, but also to a spiritual church that exists today, an apostate church that is lukewarm. And if that be us this morning, Lord, may we take heed to your, to your counsel and Follow the command that you've given this morning to be zealous and to repent. We would turn away from our sin and we would turn to you today. Lord, awaken our hearts. Speak to us. As we continue to pray, if there's anyone here this morning that wants relationship with Jesus, we're going to partake of communion, which is the, the, the remembrance of what Christ has done on the cross, that he was crucified for us, that he bled and died for us that he rose again from the dead for us. We're remembering the, the penalty that Jesus paid for us in, in the shedding of his blood. In that blood is life. And faith in the blood of Christ can cleanse you from all sin. And this morning, he, he's calling you, and, and you're not sure that you're in right relationship. You want to be. There's no point in taking communion if you're not a believer. It's not for you. And in fact, it can hurt you. Paul says that those who take it in, in an unworthy manner will suffer the consequences of that. And we don't want that to happen. This morning, if you're not in Christ, if you just lift your hand up, I want to pray a prayer with you. You can receive Christ even right now. And anybody in here this morning that's not sure about their relationship with the Lord, wants to repent, turn away from their sin, and turn back to Christ. Anyone at all? God bless you. Anybody else? Anybody else want to accept, Lord? God bless you. Anyone else? Listen, this is the most incredible decision you can make in your life. One more time. Anyone else want to accept Christ this morning? Listen, if that's you, you pray this prayer. Lord Jesus. I come to you now, and I want to receive the salvation that you promised to give by grace through faith. I'm turning away from my sin today. I'm turning to you, Lord, and I am placing my trust in you and you alone. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, cleanse me, and fill me with your spirit. I believe in your death and your resurrection and I ask you to make me a Christian now. And I thank you in Jesus' name. And if you pray that prayer in your heart with all sincerity, the Lord says that you are a new creation. And you know what? All of heaven is rejoicing right now because of that decision. Listen, you can do that anytime, anyplace. So just want to continue to extend that offer. And you can think about that and allow the Holy Spirit to deal with you on that. But as we continue in communion now, uh, I just want to remind you that 
we are being reminded of what Christ has done for us, that his blood is enough for our sin. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, that his, his blood covers you. And we, we need to be reminded of that this morning, that you are loved beyond your imagination. And so as you come forward and, part, and grab the cup and, the, and the, the, the bread, and you can partake at the, um, the, the altar here, or you can grab your family and circle up somewhere, or you can take it on your own. But we just want to just instruct you on what we're doing. We're being reminded of what Christ has done. So you come, you get the cup, you get the juice, you thank the Lord for the sin that he has covered with his blood. You thank him for his body that was broken for you. And you just commune with the Lord in these last few minutes. And then we'll close and continue on with our fellowship meal. So Lord, we thank you once again for this communion that we're about to partake of. We ask, Lord, that you would just stir our hearts Lord, and draw us close into relationship with you this morning. And we thank you for allowing us the privilege it is to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. We, we thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. And you can Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.